Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series is called The Kingdom. Over the next four weeks of Advent, in anticipation of Jesus' birth, we're going to talk about where this idea of God's kingdom came from and why Jesus is the one who finally brought the kingdom of God to fruition in our lives. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading today comes to us from Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 16. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestors. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. Soldiers asked him, What should we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone or threats of false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today comes from Luke 17, 20 to 21. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, The kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is within you. The word of the Lord. So here we are, we're at the fourth day of Advent. And it also happens to be, as I said earlier, Christmas Eve. I'm sure you all were probably aware of the Christmas Eve part, weren't you? (laughs) And I'm really surprised that you all are actually here today, because I assume most people will be coming tonight, and uh, I wouldn't get anybody this morning for my sermon. Tonight, Judy Hockenberry is going to be preaching. And uh, also, I want to apologize to any of you who thought that you were coming for a Christmas Eve service at 10 a.m., that you could knock it out and get it out of the way. Um, Because this isn't going to be a Christmas Eve sermon. This is a fourth Advent sermon. And so what that means is I'm finishing off my sermon series this morning. And then tonight you get to come back and that's when you get to sing all the Christmas songs and all that stuff. So guess what? You're in for two services today. And I hope that you'll be back for the one this evening. I've been doing a sermon series called The Kingdom. And each week we've been looking at where this idea of God's kingdom came from and we've been looking at why Jesus is the one who brings God's kingdom to fruition in our lives. And 
So what we've been doing over the last couple weeks is we've been working through these various influences on Jesus' understanding of the kingdom. And today we're coming to Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom that he was trying to create here on earth. And what I've explained to people over the last couple of weeks is that Jesus is not the first person to come up with this idea of God's kingdom. Not the first by a long shot. This was part of the Jewish religion long before Jesus was ever born. And so we've talked about three different influences to date. I'm going to walk you through those very briefly so if you weren't here, as many of you weren't, you could understand what those influences were because they play a role in what we're talking about today. So, in your pews, you should find one of these little guys, a little cheat sheet I got right here. Okay, so this is talking about, this is a little timeline of Israel. And if you took them home earlier, you weren't supposed to, but that's okay. You can take them home today if you want to. We don't need them after this, so yeah. So the first kingdom that we talked about was the kingdom of Israel. And you can see that, that the height, the zenith of that kingdom is from about 1,000 to 931. That's when King David and King Solomon, they ruled over the kingdom of Israel. And according to the Bible, this is when Israel was an independent nation that was wealthy, privileged, and feared. And so if you fast forward, you can see Jesus at the very bottom. A thousand years later, people are looking to get back to that kingdom. They want a new David, a new king who's going to rise up and who's going to restore Israel to its former glory. The second kingdom that we looked at is the kingdom of Persia with a man named King Cyrus. I know not everybody in here has ever heard of him, but he is the first person in the Bible to be called the Messiah, God's anointed one. And this is interesting for a couple of different reasons, but the one that I really emphasize to the congregation is that King Cyrus... He's not Jewish. So it's kind of odd that this man is called God's anointed one. But the reason why he's called the Messiah is because he saves the Jews from their oppression. As you can see right before in your timeline that actually the Babylonians, they came in, they took over, they enslaved the Jews. And so King Cyrus, he comes in with the Persian Empire and he ends up defeating the Babylonians and releasing the Jews and saying anybody who was enslaved, Jews included, you can go back to your homeland. So 500 years later when you get to Jesus, many people are looking for a new Messiah, a new Cyrus who's going to rise up and bring them back to a kingdom of peace. The third kingdom we talked about was last week, and this is the kingdom of Antiochus. He is part of the Seleucid Empire. And what he does is he comes in in 168 B.C., and he marches his army into Jerusalem and he slaughters 40,000 people in the streets. And then he takes another 40,000 Jews and sells them into slavery. Then he goes into the temple of Jerusalem. He installs this massive statue of Zeus and he starts sacrificing pigs on the altar. And of course, if you know anything about Judaism, pigs are not exactly kosher. So it defiled the temple. It's during this time that in the book of Daniel, which is in our Bible, this was around the time that the apocalyptic vision in Daniel was written. And in that vision, it talks about God creating God's kingdom, merging heaven and earth together, and how there was going to be this new leader, a man called the Son of Man. And this leader, he was going to dole out God's justice to all the oppressors of the Jews. And 200 years after that, when we get to Jesus, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. All right, so those are the three things we did. That's your recap. 
Today we're going to talk about how Jesus takes all three of these things, combines them together into one, and then puts his own unique spin on the kingdom of God. But before we can do that, I want to return to our timeline and talk about what we did last week. So, essentially last week we started in 539 and we went all the way to 164. Now, in 539, what happens is King Cyrus, he rules over the Persian Empire, and then he gets toppled by the Greek Empire with Alexander the Great. And then Alexander the Great, his area of land gets split up among his generals, and then a hundred years later, we get to Antiochus, who we just talked about, and in 164, what happens is the Jews come into Jerusalem, and they retake it, and they rededicate the temple in an eight-day ceremony known as Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And so this is the map right here that we left off with last week, 164. And they had just taken back Jerusalem for themselves. Today, as you can see on our little timeline, we're going to be fast-forwarding all the way to Jesus and his day, which is the third decade of the first century. But before we do that, I want to just walk you through the change in power structures that are happening. And all you really need to know at this point in time, just so we're on the same page, it's all Rome all the time. Because at this point, the Roman Empire and the Rome, Romans, they're going to start taking over everything. So, what happens is in 146 BC, we have the Roman Republic, they topple the Greek Empire. And what you can see is that what they do is they end up taking over Greece. Now, for those of you who haven't been here, this is the map we've been using to kind of show all of this. So this is 146. This is the Roman Republic. And essentially, they've taken over Greece, which means that they can't take care of any of the land to the east. And you have to imagine Italy, which most of you have Italy in your mind, right? They were more concerned with taking over land to the north and to the south. They wanted to go into Europe, and they wanted to go down into Africa. It's going to take them a while to start moving out into the east to take that over. The next person who really starts to make some movement out to the east for the Roman Republic is going to be Julius Caesar. So next, what he does is he comes up, and he's going to take over this area of land right there. You can see it's moving over slightly at that point. Now, Julius Caesar, he ends up getting assassinated in 44 BC, which causes the Roman Republic to fall into chaos. They go into civil war, and the person who comes out on top of all this is a man named Augustus Caesar, and he establishes what we know as the Roman Empire in 27 BC, and he takes over this next little chunk of land right here, and you can see that when he takes over, the Holy Land now comes into the possession of the Roman Empire. And you can see on your little timeline that Jesus is born in 4 B.C., which some people have questioned me on and said, did you get that wrong, Alex? <laughs> because isn't he supposed to be born in what year? Zero, right? Um, actually, most scholars, when they look at his birth, they believe he was born sometime between 7 and 4 B.C. That's just based on the scriptures. So, no, he was not born in year zero. We figured out that was wrong. So, Jesus, he is born during Augustus' reign, and by 14 AD, that's when the new emperor, this guy Tiberius, he comes in and he takes over, and he ends up solidifying the rest of the area around the Holy Land. He keeps the rest of it for himself, and so now you can see that basically the Roman Empire has this whole area, and 
this is when we get into Jesus' ministry as an adult. Now, for round numbers, what you can probably see on your thing is we're saying that Jesus' ministry, it lasted from about 28 to 30 A.D. We don't know if that's entirely accurate or correct, but let's just go with it for now. Are you all okay with that? It lasts about two to three years. The question that we often fail to ask as Christians is, what exactly was Jesus doing prior to his ministry? He was clearly doing something, right? We just don't know what because there's no record of it. Who was he with? What was he doing? Well, there are some clues about this in the New Testament. And some scholars have speculated that Jesus, before he goes out, launches out on his own, that he was a disciple, a student of John the Baptist. And I happen to agree with this. I think that that is probably accurate and correct, that he was a student of John the Baptist, which means that he probably learned about some of the aspects of God's kingdom from John. And so there's some evidence for this that we read this morning in the New Testament, what you heard T.C. read about. So John the Baptist, where he operated, was out in this kind of wilderness desert region. And people would come to him and they would be baptized and he would preach to them. And so one of the things that he would preach about is he would just go to the public and you saw some of his teaching, some of the things that he said. He said, uh, anyone who has two coats must give to anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. And then he turns to some tax collectors who are there, and he says to the tax collectors, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. And then he turns to some soldiers who were there, and he says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now these might just seem like simple teachings, right? But this is his understanding of God's kingdom. This is his understanding of what the kingdom would have looked like. Because here, what is he talking about? Just look at those things real quick. What's he saying? You share with those who don't have anything, right? You share with them. You give to those who don't have as much as you. You treat people with fairness and equity. That's the kingdom of God. You live it out in the world right now. And what we see is that when you get to Jesus, these ideas, these are in Jesus' notion of God's kingdom. He very much promotes the same idea. So given that there's a parallel between what John is saying here and what Jesus is saying later on, what that tells us is that maybe Jesus learned some other things from John about God's kingdom. And I would like to spend a few moments speculating with you about what those things might have been that he learned from John the Baptist. And in order to do this, I need to take a step back for a second, and I'd like to put it in context for you of what the world was like for John the Baptist when he was beginning his ministry. So when did Jesus do his ministry? Give me the dates again. Let's make sure you're following along. 28 to 30. So John, he's starting in the early 20s, okay? He's in the early 20s. And who's in control at this point in time? Who rules over the Holy Land? Roman Empire. Roman Empire at this point. Okay. Now, the philosophy of rule of the Roman Empire was actually quite simple. You will do what we say, or we will kill you. That was pretty much how it worked. And the way that they enforced this philosophy of rule was that they had soldiers who were stationed all over the empire. Remember, when John the Baptist, he's out in the wilderness preaching. Are there soldiers out there with him? Yes, there are. They were everywhere. And the whole point of them being there 
was that they enforced the laws of the empire with impunity. They used violence to make sure that you followed what they wanted. So what you have to appreciate is that because of the way these soldiers were enforcing the laws, that for the people who were peasants, Jewish peasants, that there was a lot of tension that was rising between the peasants and the Roman government at that time. And the tension had come to a mounting point because the peasants in Galilee, which is where Jesus is from, they were starving to death at that time. They were getting kicked off of their lands. It was very hard for them. And so what they started to do was they started to band together and they started to go out and raid these large cities. They would rob wealthy landowners. They would try to take money back for themselves because they had no other choice. They were in a really bad place, a really bad situation. And they were looking for a leader who was going to unite them together as one and who was going to save them from their oppression. Now this leader, this leader had certain characteristics that we talked about from the last three sermons that I preached. This person, he was going to be from the throne of David. They thought that he was going to be a king like David, and he was going to be a person after God's own heart, that he was going to be able to restore Israel. They believed that he was going to be the Messiah like King Cyrus, and he was going to bring back a kingdom of peace by toppling the Roman Empire. And they believed that he was going to establish God's kingdom on earth by merging heaven and earth together and doling out God's justice against the oppressors of the Jews. Which, a little bit of pressure, right? I mean, that's not too much that you have to do to save everybody. But that's what they were looking for. And for a while, we even saw this in the scripture we read today, some people thought that John the Baptist might be the Messiah. And there's actually a group of people, this is assuming that ISIS hasn't actually killed them, there's a group of people that existed even to this day in the Middle East. They're known as the Mandaeans. The Mandaeans. And they believe that John the Baptist is the Messiah. They worship him in the same way that we worship Jesus. And they have a whole set of scriptures that's exactly the inverse of ours. So in ours, what do we have? We have Jesus, right? He's the Messiah. He's the one who is the person we worship. And John the Baptist is the one who we say, well, he's the prophet announcing Jesus. In their scriptures, it's the opposite. In their scriptures, it's John the Baptist is the Messiah and Jesus is the prophet. For the sake of argument, can we assume that our scriptures are correct on this matter? Are we okay with that? Okay, so let's assume that John the Baptist is looking for the Messiah. Does that sound good? Okay, so he's out in the desert. He's preaching. And you have to realize that most of the people who are with him are disaffected young men. These are men who cannot find jobs, they cannot support their families, and so they're looking for a way to fight back. So they go out to John, and John, he's talking about the kingdom all the time. He's saying the kingdom's going to be here at any moment, guys, but we got to find the leader. And this leader, he's talking about all those characteristics we just discussed, all those characteristics. And then one day, John the Baptist, he probably says to this group of men, he says, and this leader... He's going to call himself the Son of Man. And maybe, just maybe, that's the day that Jesus decides that he's going to get baptized. Because if you've ever read the scriptures, what you know is that after Jesus' baptism, that's when he starts his ministry. And that's when he says, I am the Son of Man. 
And Jesus, the moment he goes out, the moment he starts preaching, he starts talking about God's kingdom, and he says, the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand, it'll be here at any moment. So be prepared. But it becomes very clear very quickly that Jesus has taken John's version of the kingdom and he's made it his own. He's put his own unique twist on it. What's very interesting about Jesus' version of the kingdom is that it's the reverse order of everything you would expect in our world. Everything's been turned upside down. So Jesus says that when you get into God's kingdom, those who would normally be first in this world will be last. And those who are now last in this world, they will be first. In particular, Jesus has some pretty harsh words to say about those who have money and wealth. He says that you will have a tough time gaining access to the kingdom. And he tells us in no uncertain terms that the poor, they are favored in God's kingdom. Look at what Jesus says right here. He says, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So whatever advantages you might have been given in this life through your money and your social status, those advantages will not exist in God's kingdom. Indeed, those advantages may become a liability that will prevent you from even having a seat at the table. I cannot express to you just how radical this notion of God's kingdom was at that time. You see, at this point in time in Galilee, you have all these Jews and they're looking for God's kingdom. They're waiting for it. It's coming. It's going to be here any day. And they all believed that the parameters for entrance into God's kingdom was whether or not you were Jewish, whether or not you were one of God's chosen people. But you know what Jesus does? He totally upends that dynamic. And he starts challenging traditional notions of Jewish piety. Now what do I mean by that? Don't zone out on me. Traditional notions of Jewish piety. Do you know what that means? That means that in the first century, if you were wealthy, they believed that you were favored by God. You were loved by God. You were a person who God looked at and said, you're the best. And everybody else who's poor, you're not quite as good. So if you had money, that meant you were at the top of the heap. But Jesus, he starts questioning that. He starts saying, no, that's not the case. And that in fact, if you are first, you will be last. This is something that was unheard of at the time. Basically what Jesus is saying is he's saying that if you are blessed by God, you're not going to have a seat at the table. So even Jesus' disciples were bewildered at this idea. Because to them, the kingdom of God, follow me on this, don't zone out, follow me, the kingdom of God, it's a mirror image of this world, the world that we're in right now, except with the difference that the Jews were in control of everything. Now I want you to do something for me. I want you to step back. Can you do a little mental exercise? A little mental exercise. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a Jewish peasant. Can you do that? Okay, let me give you some qualifications so you can understand what that would be like. Uh, you don't eat very much. Your life is really hard. And most of the time, you die young. And it doesn't really seem like anybody cares that much about your suffering. So that's kind of the world that you live in. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you hear this guy, Jesus. He comes along, and he says, hey, in God's kingdom, the first will be last, the last will be first. What would you be thinking? You'd be thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. First of all, you say, so wait, what you're telling me is, 
In God's kingdom, I'm going to be first. I've never been first in anything. My needs, my family, they've been last. They've been an afterthought in this society. But when I get to God's kingdom, what you're telling me is that God is going to love me first and God's going to take care of my family first. This would have been absolutely amazing for you. For the first time in your life, you might actually believe that God really loves you. I mean, think about that for a moment. We hear about God's love all the time, but when you're suffering and struggling like that, how hard is it to believe that God actually loves you? And Jesus, he promotes this idea that God does love you, and God is looking out for you. So God, so Jesus, he takes this idea of God's kingdom and he turns it upside down. But he also turns the concept of Messiah upside down. So who was Jesus supposed to be? He was supposed to be this king who raised an army. You can follow it up here and you can see what I'm saying. He defeats the powers of the Roman government. And then he's going to bring peace to the Jewish people and establish God's kingdom on earth. Did Jesus do any of those things? Was he the king of Israel? Well, he might have been above his cross, but I guarantee you, most people weren't looking at him and saying, you're the king of Israel. Did he raise an army? No, he had 12 disciples. That's hardly an army. Did he defeat the powers of the Roman government? No. And did he establish God's kingdom on earth? I don't know. I mean, here's this guy. He's supposed to do all these things, and he ends up getting killed by the very people he's supposed to defeat. He's executed by them. So if Jesus is the Messiah, he's definitely not the Messiah everybody was looking for, that's for sure. But remember, he takes this idea and he turns it upside down. Jesus is a king, but he's not a king in the sense that he sits on a throne and he rules over geographic territory and he has armies that defend his borders. No, 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 nothing like that. Jesus is the king of our hearts. And when Jesus is the king of your heart, when he's the Lord of your life, what does that word Lord mean? Have you ever heard somebody say, is Jesus your Lord? Have you ever heard somebody say that to you? They say that in the South a lot. They ask that question. Is Jesus your Lord? Do you know what that means? King and Lord, those are interchangeable words because a king lords over you and dictates how you have to live your life. When Jesus is the Lord of your life, what that means is that no matter how much you suffer at the hands of tyranny, God is always with you. I'm going to say that again. No matter how much you suffer at the hands of tyranny, God is always with you. That might sound kind of trite, actually, because if you're really being persecuted and you sit there and you say, hey, God's going to be with you, don't worry about it, that may not sound like much. But in a very beautiful and unexpected way, Jesus' messiahship becomes the very antidote to tyranny. You see, what people wanted Jesus to do was crush the oppressors of the Jews. He would make them bend to his will. And he was going to be so powerful that everybody would bow down to him. And they would have to suffer at his hands as he doled out punishment. That's not Jesus. Have you ever read the New Testament? Does that sound like Jesus to you? Jesus was kind. He was meek. He was humble. And he only imposed his will on you if it's something that you wanted for yourself. This is the key to everything I've been saying, everything I've been working toward, this idea right here. Jesus, he only 
imposes his will on you if it's something you desire and choose for yourself. This little idea, this notion right here, this concept that you choose for Jesus to be your king, this is the genius of Jesus' Messiahship. Because when you choose it for yourself, it means so much more than when it's imposed on you. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say to you, you're going to do what I say because I tell you to? Have you ever had that happen? Everybody in here has. Your parents have probably said it at one point in time, right? At the very least, if not your spouse. Uh, And do you like it when people say that to you? You resent it, don't you? Absolutely you do. And so when a king or a leader comes and says that, you will do what I say because I say so, that kingdom's not going to last. It will eventually fall apart. But when you choose to be part of the kingdom, when you choose to have Jesus as the king of your heart, well, that kingdom, that kingdom will never fail. And what's more important is that Jesus' kingdom, because it's inside of your heart, it's not restricted by places and locations. What do we read? I read this two sentences from Luke's gospel. The kingdom of God is where it is within you. So what that means is Jesus' kingdom, it goes from generation to generation. It can last for thousands of years because each new generation is given the choice. Will you choose to have Jesus as the Lord of your life? And with that choice, with each generation that has that opportunity, it creates this amazing dynamic. Because little by little, bit by bit, as more and more people choose to have Jesus as the Lord of their lives, tyranny is destroyed, and heaven is merged with earth as we become Jesus' hands and feet in the world. Do you want to know the day that the kingdom of God will be established? You want to know when that's going to happen? The day that the kingdom of God will be established here on earth is the same day that every single heart in the world is working in unison to bring it about. So when Jesus said 2,000 years ago, the kingdom of God is near, he meant it. The kingdom of God is near. It's as near as our willingness to bring it about. It's as near as our choice to make Jesus the Lord of our lives. It's as near as Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God is within our grasp because the kingdom of God starts inside of your heart and you bring it out into the world. My prayer for you today is that tomorrow, as you celebrate the birth of Jesus, this little child who is the central figure in the lives of millions of people around the world, that you would choose to follow him and that you would do your part to create God's kingdom here on earth. Be the hands and feet of that little baby boy in the world, because the kingdom of God is near. Jesus just needs us to bring it about. Merry Christmas. I look forward to seeing you all tonight. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.com. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.